Okay, so today we've got founder and CEO of Equipopolis, Tobias Batten. Tobias um, is a gaming industry veteran. He's worked across kind of social games, including Clan Wars. We discuss the rise of social and mobile games, some of the learnings from that around um, in-game transactions um, and free-to-play and how that carries over into the world of Web3 and blockchain gaming. And we hear about how Xpopulous is going to onboard traditional game developers to improve the quality of games that we're seeing within Web3 and blockchain games and hopefully onboard millions of users. Welcome, Tobias. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So Xpopulous is described as a video game publishing company um, that brings or enables trad game developers, traditional game developers, to distribute and port their games into the world of Web3. Xpopulous is a project that we've been working in in our later stage program called Ascent. It's been a real pleasure working with you and the team, all lovely people. And I think the, the thing that excited us most both about you as a founder and, and the wider team was just the depth of knowledge and experience, professional working experience in gaming. Um, unlike a lot of people in uh, you know the kind of blockchain gaming world, they're not necessarily of gaming. And so you can kind of see that in, in the implementations that come through. So, you know, you guys, uh, you guys are the real deal. And I'm going to invite you to, to, Talk about your background, but then also the people that you've uh, been able to attract into X Populous. But before I do, um, quick summary: you know, you are a seasoned entrepreneur. You founded three companies, you sold two, um, and you've been responsible for over 150 million app installs uh, delivered to the top mobile game publishers um, within uh, your publishing company, uh, Signal Zero. Going all the way back to 2012, you were hired by a merged digital group to build a mobile division, which helped emerge, um, be named America's eighth fastest growing company. Um, so uh, a lot of things under your belt. Now, of course, gaming, blockchain gaming, play to earn is very hot right now. But I think, you know, you've, you've taken an interesting approach to allowing, as I said, you know, traditional game developers to come into the space. And of course, it probably feels really obvious to you and I that Web3 is uh, you know, very complementary to, to gaming, to the gaming industry, but that's not necessarily understood by everybody. And if you look at, I guess, the more kind of centralized equivalents to you guys, um, whether it's Steam or you know, even gamers and things like Discord, there's been a lot of pushback to, to blockchain and crypto and NFTs. And that's something I definitely want to ex explore with you. What, why, why is that happening? And you know, then, then why should um, X Populous be different? But let's, let's get to know you a little bit more. So as I, as I said, perhaps rather clumsily, you're a serial founder. Um, you're also an industry gaming veteran. Um, but tell us more about you and your journey to X Populous. Yeah, thanks for that intro, by the way. I was originally born and raised in Michigan um, in a small town called Niles, graduated high school in 1999 and immediately moved uh, away from uh, Niles, Michigan and into the Bay Area, had an uncle 
living in Redwood City at the time. Um, so this is sort of like the peak of the dot-com era. And I was like 18 years old um, and sort of in this new community that was a bit of a culture shock for me coming from this like small Rust Belt town in Michigan. Um, but I, I loved it. I loved the people that I met. Everything that I, I found that was happening around me was intriguing and fascinating. Um, I was not a part of the dot-com boom really in any way other than just sort of hearing people talk about it at the BART stations and stuff like that. When I was that age, of course, I was going to college um, and working side jobs to paint houses and stuff like that when I was when I was young. But uh, fast forward a few years and I ended up um, working at AT&T, which is one of the largest telecommunications companies in the US. And I was negotiating um, basically data network contracts uh, for medium-sized businesses in the Bay Area. And I walked into a business, I think around 2004 or 2005, and the name of the company was Atom Films. Um, and if you're you know, as old as I am and you're listening, you may remember them. This is before YouTube existed, and, and there were these little video sites that were popping up. And Atom Films uh, was eventually acquired, I think, by MTV, Viacom. But at the time, they were really popular because they had all these pieces of really cool short content. Uh, that people would watch animated content. A lot of it was sort of like sci-fi or comic booky and really fun to watch. I noticed they had about 20 employees. I think I was selling them something called a T1 line. And I just thought to myself, you know, I love film. I love entertainment. And I think I could probably build a business like this. Um, so I called a buddy of mine who who had been a longtime friend. And he was sort of more of a, of a tech guy than I was. At that point in my career, I was really more of a, of a business person. But we decided to build a company similar to, to Adam Films called Liberated Films. And back then, um, at that stage, it was really hard to get video content on the internet. It was hard because paying for storage was really expensive and paying for bandwidth was also very expensive. And I met a company uh, that was also a startup and, and we're sort of in this Web 2.0 era now, right? It's 2005, 2006. Name of this company was Bit Gravity. Became really good friends with the founder, a guy named Barrett Lyon, um, who's uh, relatively famous in in the startup world. Uh, he was one of the founders of Bit Gravity and basically negotiated a deal where we could get the bandwidth and um, storage for for cheap. Uh, and as a result of that, we could build this sort of video distribution portal on the internet. I ended up flying all over the world. I went to Sundance and Cannes, and I went to Tribeca and South by Southwest. And at these festivals, I would talk to uh, filmmakers. And basically, the pitch back then, again, remember, this is early, early days. I would say, hey, you're, you're taking your film to these film festivals, and they're getting seen by like literally a 1,000 people. Put it on my website, and you're going to get way more exposure. It's going to be seen by you know tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, or maybe even millions of people. And at that point in time, that was a really great sales pitch uh, to independent filmmakers. And and we licensed thousands of independent films from these festivals, and had uh, full feature length films available online. One of the only sites to do it at that time. And as a result. Uh, the the site became really popular. There was millions of people coming to visit and, and watch movies. Um, I never raised money into this company. I built everything with my own money, with credit cards and my own money. My buddy and I shared the equity. There was never any VCs. I remember getting calls from VCs uh, who were interested in investing, but we just made it work on our own. 
And one day we got a call from um, a group of people that were representing a company in Russia called Ren Media Group. Ren Media Group is one of the larger media companies in Russia, and they were interested in what we had built. They wanted to acquire it. Uh, and long story short, we sold it to them. They, they had a great offer, and we owned most of the company, so we got basically all of the upside. And it was a really, really uh, fantastic and addictive first experience uh, for me as an entrepreneur building a company. I think that whole story I just told probably lasted just a little less than two years. So it was a pretty quick turnaround. That website was actually built uh, by a company that existed in Minsk. Minsk is a city in Belarus. Belarus used to be a part of the Soviet Union. They, they speak Russian there. And I had gotten to know these software developers um, through a Craigslist ad that I put up. And I actually became really good friends with the founders of this company, a guy named Peter uh, Skoroni and, and Matt Vitimashenko. Okay, so these guys have been friends for for years. They're still friends today. And um, when they saw me sell that company, they were like, "Hey, whatever you you do next, like we want a piece of it. Like, our we've got like eighty software developers here. Whatever you're doing next, like, you know, we'll give you hundreds of thousands of dollars in free development. We just want to own a, a piece of the company. And you know, I like these guys. I'd visit them, you know, probably half a dozen times and. Um, had a had a friendship with them, so we went in on the next business together, and also raised money this time from some angel investors, and decided to make uh, a social game. So now it's like 2007, you know, maybe 2008, and we're working on a social game. You know, around the same time that like Farmville was really popular on Facebook, and and um, Mafia Wars was really popular. Like we'd even started making this game before those games had released. I think both of those games released before art before ours did, but like we were in that sort of trend, that early, the early days of Zynga, if you will. Um, and that game took like a year to make. So we're working on this game. It's a it's a bigger game. It's called Clan Wars, uh, which you may have heard of because it was super popular back then. But around the same time, we hear that the app store is coming out on the on the iPhone, and we're like, "Hey, let's just fool around and make an app, um, and and you know, just kind of to learn and see what the app store is all about." So prior to Clan Wars releasing, we literally I flew to Minsk. We spent like literally two or three weeks making this silly app uh, that that was intended really just as a learning experience, and it was called iGirl, and it was. You know, basically a virtual girlfriend, um, which was very, you know, rather tasteful or whatever um, on the classier side of things. But we didn't even know if Apple would approve the app. And if they did, we we're like, whatever, this is just sort of a test run to see if we can do 3D graphics on an iPhone, which nobody really knew if you could do it back then. Long story short, iGirl took off. It was getting downloaded like 2 million times a day. It was on TechCrunch. It was everywhere. And we were like, oh, well, cool, I guess. Um, we were selling it for um, for like 99 cents at one point and, and made uh, a few million dollars on on the sales of, of that. And then we just let it go for free. And uh, that helped uh, provide further funding to Clan Wars. So, you know, we had some angel investors that had come into that. And and then the rest of the funding was just provided by this, you know, iPhone experiment that we had made. And Clan Wars came out, and it was just it was huge. Like immediately, you know, there were just within the first couple of months, there were millions of people playing it. And a lot of this comes down to timing. Like you have to time your startups correctly. 
with liberated films, we had the timing, you know, correct. It was, you know, a little bit before YouTube had even come out. And, and then of course with clan wars, it was right around the same time as Farmville. And, um, I guess, you know, I didn't even know that my timing was, was going to be right on those. It wasn't like a conscious thought at, at the time. It just worked out, which was really cool. And, uh, eventually a guy named Mike Goslin reached out to me. And at that point in time, he was, uh, with a company called MindSpark Interactive. MindSpark Interactive, um, was the gaming division of a really big U.S. company called IAC. If you haven't heard of IAC, IAC is, um, the umbrella corporation that owns all kinds of things that you probably use like Tinder and OkCupid and Match. They also own Vimeo. If you go to their site, you'll literally see like thousands of companies listed and and they ended up acquiring uh, Clan Wars, uh, which again was a great exit for me because I wasn't sharing the equity with too many groups. There, there were no VCs. It was just some angel investors and the software company in Minsk. Um, after that, I took time off. Like I just chilled for a while. Um, and then eventually I was called... Uh, by IGN, uh, which was owned by News Corporation at the time. And they said, hey, we've read about you online and saw that you you know, had this uh, Clan Wars thing and that got acquired. And uh, we have all these independent game developers who are making PC games. Um, and they're really talented sort of arts artists that are uh, really focused on creating these wonderful experiences, but could use some coaching uh, when it comes to how to build a business, I guess. And and what that means, I guess, in that space is like getting distribution agreements with Xbox and PlayStation and Steam uh, and really sort of just focusing on working in a way that you can finish the game. A lot of a lot of people obviously have issues finishing. So this was really cool. We had, you know, some different people come in and out of this group uh, while I was there. I got an opportunity to work briefly with Notch, uh, who is the guy who made Minecraft. Um, Edmund McMillan came in there very brief, briefly, and, and he's the guy behind Super Meat Boy and The Binding of Isaac. And um, another guy named Alex Austin was in there, uh, who's known in the independent game space. He recently made Subnautica, which is a Devolver title, but really became famous for, for Bridge Builder and Gish. Uh, and also met a lifelong friend in there, a guy named Justin Woodward, uh, who currently owns the Media Indie Exchange, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, but that it was a wonderful experience working with all these guys and and um, watching these guys work so hard to sort of finish their projects and you know get them to the finish line and you know get them uploaded to Steam and you know for some of them it didn't work out but for some of these guys they they made enough money that they never have to work again in the, in their lives which is just amazing to watch and so I did that for about a year uh, maybe a little more than a year and then um, was asked by another friend. Uh, to help him with his business called uh, the Emerge Digital Group. So the Emerge Digital Group was interesting because this was the first time I had ever worked with uh, a pure advertising company. And this was circa like 2012, 2013. And when I was in there, the, the whole sort of revolution was happening in the advertising ecosystem called programmatic, right? So RTB means real-time bidding, Advertising was starting to look a lot more like exchanges on Wall Street, um, where you could buy and sell your ad inventory in real time. And a lot of this is done almost with like high frequency trading bots. And that ecosystem, uh, based on, on something called the Open RTB specification, which was created by Google, was broken into two sides. You had a DSP, uh, which stands for a demand side platform. 
And then you had an SSP, which stands for a supply side platform. And then the DSPs would connect to the SSPs using the standard protocols that were created by Google. And that's where the bidding would take place. So the Emerge Digital Group was an SSP. Um, they, they actually had a few SSPs that they had created uh, internally through a series of acquisitions that they had done um, called rollups. And I was in charge of the mobile um, sort of arm of this. So, so again, you know, we're back in 2012 and, and mobile was a new thing. It's a lot like Web3 right now where companies were saying, hmm, we're used to the web, we're used to desktop, and now there's this whole mobile thing. And is it real, you know? And I, I had had all this experience with Clan Wars and iGirl and making mobile apps. And they were like, Toby, come in here and, you know, build a mobile division for us. Um, so I did that. I actually did it for about a year I think at the most, and the company was just growing at an insane pace. I think when I went in there, there were like 13 employees. And by the time I left, it was like 120 or 130. So it, it 10X its headcount in 12 months. But I just got the itch, man. Like I didn't really want to do that anymore. I, I was there while my wife was pregnant. So at this point, I had, I had actually gotten married. I actually married my project manager from the Belarusian company. Her name's Luba. <laughs> yeah. Luba's great. She works at uh, Meta now. Um, she and I have been married for about 10 years. Uh, but yeah, I, I had gotten married and, and she was pregnant and about to have a kid while I was at Emerge. So that was fine for, for a bit. But really you're, just you're literally sleeping, sleeping with the enemy. But I, we'll, 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 <laughs> let's not go into that. Yeah. There you go. Uh, well, now my kids, you know, my kids speak Russian and everything. And um, anyway. So I left Emerge and really had the itch to, to do my own thing again. So the mobile explosion had kind of taken off and VCs were just shoving money into um, any mobile gaming company that existed. And really the KPIs for all these mobile gaming companies was get as many installs, get as many users as you possibly can. I had a really good track record at this point, not working with VCs. I'd never had raised at this point in my career, any institutional capital at all. Um, and I didn't want to, like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to work with VCs and I had cash and, uh, started this company, you know, sort of with my own money. And, um, really the goal was if all these mobile game companies have all this money from these VCs and the VCs are telling them, go and go and get installs, let's build an install business. And we can, you know, we can get the money that way. We can basically run sort of this like picks and shovels lifestyle business, um, delivering installs to these big mobile publishers and, um, use that basically as an annuity to fund more interesting projects, if you will. So we did that. We built, uh, in the company, the company's name was Signal Zero. We built a product called Token Wall, and uh, back then the, they were called Offer Walls. Um, and this is, you know, for people listening, very similar actually to like a very early play-to-earn platform, because the way the business worked is uh, Supercell or MZ or come to us or an ad network like Tapjoy or Fiber, uh, they would come to us and say, "Look, we've got this app." We need to get it to the top of the charts. In order to get it to the top of the charts, we've got to deliver 100,000 installs in like 24 hours because that's how Apple's algorithm works. And you can't do that with Facebook ads or Google ads. They can never provide that much volume, at least not economically. So we would take, you know, like $2 per install is what they would pay us uh, usually in, in those days. And we would take, you know, somewhere between like 25% to 50% of that budget 
and pay it to our users um, in the form of points. Uh, and then they could exchange those points. First, it was Amazon Amazon gift cards uh, and Steam gift cards. And then we started incorporating Bitcoin um, and ETH and eventually had over like 100 different cryptocurrencies that people could redeem their points for, which was really cool. And that platform took off. It was crazy. It, I mean, we were doing millions of dollars a month in revenue at one point with a team of like 10 of us. And the growth was insane. <laughs> I actually, uh, I went to Pivotal Labs uh, in San Francisco because we were growing so fast and I couldn't hire fast enough uh, to fill the engineering demand uh, to, to scale the platform. So I had to go to this group in, in San Francisco, actually around the world, known as Pivotal Labs at the time, uh, but it's since been acquired by VMware and is now, I believe, called Tanzu Labs. But Pivotal Labs has been known in Silicon Valley since literally like the 80s as being like the number one mercenary that you go to when you have a tech company and you've got a, a really hard problem to solve. And that problem could be scale like it was with us, but other companies have had other issues. And I don't know if you remember the early days of Twitter when when the fail whale uh, w- would show yeah. up all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter went to Pivotal Labs and Pivotal Labs helped them fix those issues. So we were in there and they taught me so much. I mean, that was one of the most enriching experiences I've had um, as an entrepreneur that works with software platforms and learning how to build scalable software very quickly. Um, and, and took a lot of convictions from that. And we scaled Signal Zero. I think it, at peak had over 60 million users. Um, but another really interesting experience that I had at Signal Zero is that we would, you know, we were paying people, of course, to play games. So inevitably, bots would come, like bot farms would come, and they would uh, basically make one mobile device appear to be like a thousand mobile devices so they could get more incentives. The challenge that created, of course, is that our customers were the advertisers and they would detect that a lot of this activity was becoming inauthentic, that it was bots and it was fake and that they weren't getting their money's worth as an advertiser. So to defend the business line that we had created, we ended up, um, well, first we incorporated third party uh, like cybersecurity software that would detect um, a lot of this activity. But we learned pretty quickly that because of privacy laws, a lot of data can't be shared with third parties. And these cybersecurity platforms would fall under that category of a third party. So there was data that we had that we could see that we couldn't share with the cybersecurity platforms. And we realized pretty quickly there was a delta between what we were detecting as, as uh, like bot traffic and what the cybersecurity platforms were, were able to detect. So we ended up investing, you know, in part with Pivotal Labs, but also just with our own engineering team that we had built, you know, over the years, millions of dollars in um, loss prevention software, I guess we would call it. But really the majority of that was authenticating that a device is real. Uh, versus in, inauthentic. So the way that that would work is your mobile phone has all kinds of data on it. And if I have an SDK inside of an app and that app is installed on your phone, that app includes software from, from my company too. And my company software is looking at your phone's data. And some of the data you would expect me to take, like I'm detecting an IP address and I'm detecting something called the IDFA, which is your advertising identifier. But I'm also grabbing almost everything that you see on, um, like if you have an iPhone, for example, and you go to general and then go to about, I'm basically grabbing all of that data. 
which is a lot of data. The name of your phone, what software version you have, the model name. I'm also grabbing your accelerometer information so I can see what angle you're holding your phone at um, and a bunch of other stuff. And the reason why that was important for us is because uh, basically what the fraudsters were doing is they were changing a lot of this data so that every time they would come back, it wouldn't look like the same phone. It would look like a new phone to our detection software, but they would always forget some of the data. They wouldn't always change all of it. So we could leverage that to say, hey, this is actually the same device and you've already installed this app and we're not going to give you, we're not going to pay you for, for installing this app or for playing this game again. Um, but we learned a lot about data, uh, you know, going deep down those rabbit holes and even got to the point where we were um, leveraging something called Shannon Entropy, which is one of the most fascinating things I've learned about in my entire career. And I still think about it constantly today, but there's a guy named, um, I believe, Claude Shannon, uh, who came up uh, with, with this concept called information theory way back, I believe, in like the 1940s. And it's almost taken over physics. Like if you read about um, Claude Shannon and, and um, basically this other physicist latched on to this information theory thing, and the physicist is John Archibald Wheeler. And John Archibald Wheeler said, hey, this is really interesting. I don't think the basic building blocks of existence is atoms or subatomic particles. I think it's actually just pure information, almost like ones and zeros. Um, that's a little bit of a tangent. But what you, can, what you can do with information theory and this thing inside of informa information theory called Shannon entropy is you can take devices. Let's say, just for an easy example, you have 10 TVs, and these 10 TVs are the same model numbers, uh, same manufacturers, everything's the same, all the parts and pieces are identical. But when that TV sends a signal um, to a satellite, the signature pattern in that signal is a little bit different from TV to TV, because on a molecular level, those TVs aren't the same. There's little differences, and that affects everything that the television does, you know, down to the signals that it sends to the satellite. And, and that's the entropy that you're detecting. That entropy that you're detecting creates a fingerprint. Um, and if you can detect that fingerprint, you can then uniquely identify those 10 TVs uh, as separate, unique televisions, even though all the um, unique identifiers, serial numbers, whatever, on the TV or model numbers on the TV may be the same. Does that, does that make sense or did I get too too weird? No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and you know, honestly, this is um, it's kind of a fascinating backstory. And as I said, just as a, as a founder, to you mentioned timing, right? You know, to have been on the zeitgeist, arguably in web one, you know, web, web two, um, we're kind of social games, and then mobile games, and now Web3. So really the kind of question is, you know, why now Web3? And, you know, why specifically in game publishing? So I guess I'll answer the second question first, which in my whole career, so after Signal Zero, basically what happened with Signal Zero is everybody made money. We made lots of money. It was great. Nobody bought the company. Um, the demand for that kind of advertising just went down over time, and we just you know turned the company off, basically. But it was a good experience for everyone involved. I took a year and a half off, roughly. I did a little bit of consulting during that time, but mostly I was just hanging out with my kids. And um, I think the, the most 
fun and engaging experience I had through that whole career was my time in the indie open house at IGN when I was working with independent game developers. Like as a person who loves video games uh, myself, uh, to me that that was just really it was authentic, right? Like there's all these different branches of gaming. You have social and mobile gaming, and really those are just money making machines. Um, you know, if you think especially about like the mobile games that were popular four or five years ago. And then you have PC and console games. And like the whole point of these games is just to immerse people into new worlds. And you are starting to see some of that in mobile now with games like Genshin Impact. But to me, those experiences were the most authentic and the most real, where the creators of those games are really just trying to delight the users and the gamers who, who play them. And, and I was always attracted to that and wanted to come back to it. So that's ultimately what I decided to do. And, you know, initially when we started X Populous, this was January of 2021. It was me, uh, a co-founder named Sean Charles, who had led the publishing division of ESL for like the past 10 years. And a dear friend of mine named Mark Harris, um, who spent most of the last 15 years at Pixar as like a directing animator on Pixar movies, uh, and also spent some time at Baobab creating VR experiences and, and won a bunch of Emmys. And we're just really passionate about making fantastic content and working with other people who do the same thing. So we decided to to create X Populous, you know, both to, to work on some projects that, that we had going on internally and also to help other folks that, that needed help really as a video independent video game publishing company. So, you know, day one, we looked a lot like a company uh, called Devolver Digital. If you want to look them up, that, that was sort of the day one of X Populous. Uh, this whole time, I'd been investing in cryptocurrency personally since like 2012 or 2013. Uh, right around the time I left Emerge Digital Group uh, to, to start Signal Zero. Um, I'd invested in some ICOs. I even played around with the idea of having an ICO at Signal Zero. Never, never did it. Um, but I met a lot of people during this time. And one of the guys I met uh, is a guy named Clement Wong, who's a co-founder at Xpopulous. And he, he was partnered up with this guy named Sobi Saqib, who is uh, at Sobi Life on Twitter. So I got a call in like February or March of last year. And Clem was like, bro, <laughs> like you got to... You got to look into NFTs. Top Shots is huge. You got to look into this metaverse stuff that's happening. Like we need to do something now. And um, I was like, okay, this is interesting because I keep hearing the same thing from my wife, who at that point worked at Oculus. Um, like she was talking about, like, hey, the metaverse is going to be a really big deal. You should you should pay attention to it. So I had a couple of phone calls uh, with Clement and Sobi. And pulled in, um, you know, of course, Sean and, and Mark, and we all hit it off really well. And really, the idea is that if you look at the evolution of video games, a lot has changed even over the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, if you go back to 15 years ago, there were no microtransactions in video games. In fact, I tell this story all the time now. Oblivion is an Elder Scrolls game that came out in 2006. So this is the Elder Scrolls game that came out before Skyrim, right? Uh, they sold horse armor in Oblivion for like three or four bucks. And the internet lost its mind. They were so, all the gamers were so angry that Oblivion sold horse armor in their game and they didn't just include it for free. And they felt like they were getting nickel and dimed. But if you, if you fast forward to today, 
you know, Fortnite's free to play, Apex Legends, all these games are free to play. And the way that they make money is with, you know, battle passes and, and in-game purchases, in-game items. So it's become standard. When I look at Web3, the thing that's the most attractive to me and that I believe will be the most attractive to gamers once they truly understand it is that the company behind uh, or the group behind the game doesn't make money unless the players do. Right. And and to me, that's fascinating because it's actually the opposite of what happened with social gaming where um, or with microtransactions where the players are like, you're nickel and diming us. Uh, you know, every little thing we want to do, you're like another three dollars, another three dollars, another three dollars. And I totally understood why players, including myself, didn't like that 10 years ago. And they've sort of just become accustomed to it over the last, I don't know, five or six years. I think. Players today are mistaking what's happening in Web3 for like another version of that. And and I don't think that's the case. I think it's just sort of this different mental model that you have to wrap your head around where you're really sort of a part of the ecosystem. You're a part of the economy as a player. And it's much more likely that you're going to make money playing this game if the group, if the developer of the game is making money. You're sort of rising and falling together, I guess, if that makes sense. Um and to me, that's I wouldn't go so far as to call it benevolent, um, but it's definitely um, just super interesting as a as a premise for a game designer to consider how that that new mechanic and, and sort of community owned economy plays into everything that you put in the game. Um, so so you know, kind of understanding that, you know, talking to Clem and Sobi, and you know, we're all just like this completely makes sense. Of course, we would do this. This is the wave of the future. For, for gaming and we need to jump on it as soon as possible. So then how does how does X Populous speak to this? What is X Populous and how does it empower game developers? And I know the idea that it empowers traditional game developers to kind of enter the space. Yeah, so Bill Gates wrote an essay in 1996 and it's called Content is King. The reason that he wrote that essay at that period is because the internet was new in 1996, kind of like Web3 is today. And basically what he was saying is for all the different mis- business models that we see companies putting together, really at the end of the day, what people want is great content. And that's a very ambiguous statement on purpose because he means this within the context of uh, a news website or a news app. He means this within the context of games that you can play online. He means this in the context of movies. Like all the stuff that people want and people consume is content. And the higher quality content you make, the more likely it is that you're going to win the race in the long term. And if you look today at um, sort of Web 2, look at Disney. I mean, they own Star Wars, they own Marvel, um, they own all the big franchises. And as a result of that, they win, right? Microsoft is doing the same thing. Uh, they just acquired Blizzard and Activision. Um, and prior to that, they, they acquired Bethesda, which has the Elder Scrolls IP that I just referenced earlier. The thing that we see happening today, I think my, my own personal perspective is that when you're in a new industry or a new paradigm, there's this concept that used to get thrown around a lot like 10 years ago called a blue ocean. And what it means is that this new industry or new market has emerged and there's no one in it or there's very few people in it. It's almost like a vacuum. And if you enter that space early, you get really big, really fast. Oftentimes, the um, 
content or the apps or the companies, like think back to the early days of the app store, you know, people made like fart apps right? and they were like hugely popular. If anybody does that today, no one cares. So that's an example, right? And and today when I look at Web3, what I'm seeing is that, you know, maybe there's some games out there that are really popular, but I think they could be better. And, and I do think that um, sort of more professional uh, game developers that have, you know, decades of experience making content that people really want to engage with, even if it's not paying you an incentive, they're slowly moving over to Web3. We, you know, we have some of them on our team, of course, and we're talking to more um, at, at other companies. And as they do, you're going to see the quality bar of what it takes to succeed in, in, in Web3 increase. Uh, gradually over time. And again, you can p- compare that to mobile. I mean, I'm sure everybody remembers Game of War Fire Age, right? Which had like the silly Kate Upton ads all over the place on mobile devices in like 2014. But that game's like off the list now. Everybody plays Genshin Impact in games that are much higher quality. So our, our thesis with all of this is to work with the best creators that we can find. We have a few of them on our team. Uh, Mark Harris is a great example. I mean, he's one of the top uh, contributors to animation at Pixar and has made some VR experiences that have won Emmys. Um, and we're working with more. And, and the way that we work uh, with game developers is a little, a little bit different sometimes. Like we have a publishing agreement with a game called Lamoverse. Um, and we're actually in acquisition talks with a few other companies right now. So, you know, the goal is just to work with the developer in a way that, that makes sense for them. Um, and also for us, but you know, really aiming for just the best content that we can we can possibly bring to Web three. So is it is it fair to say that you're a Web three native Steam? Um, and why do you think Steam is so anti Web three? And do you think they're going to maintain that position when they see you taking their lunch? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that's a, a really good example of how you can describe Xpopulous as a Web3 Steam. The, the company behind Steam is Valve. Valve is responsible for Half-Life, um, Portal, Dota 2, Left 4 Dead. So they, they make games, and I believe Left 4 Dead was actually an acquisition, and Counter-Strike is another one they acquired. So we're we're similar to them in that way. And then, of course, they have their marketplace called Steam. And we have a marketplace at xpopulous.com where we sell all of the games that, that we work with. So it, it is a really good comparison. I think the reason why Steam is probably avoiding Web3 for the moment is because they have the Steam community market, which is more or less identical to the ecosystem that you see. Uh, with like these secondary markets like OpenSea on um, ETH or like a Magic Eden on Solana. If they open all that up, if they start allowing people to put NFTs inside of their video games, it usurps uh, a tremendous amount of enterprise value that they've worked very hard to build over the last decade, which is the Steam community market. So if you're not familiar with the Steam community market, uh, it's basically a market where games that are sold on Steam, if they choose, can integrate their games with the Steam community market through something called Steamworks. Um, and then their in-game items can be bought and sold by by players um, who play those games. And the most common um, thing sold on, on the market is like Counter-Strike skins. Steam takes, I think, 10% um, of every transaction. 
so that would be comparable to like a royalty that someone would take on, on an open sea or a magic Eden. But what's really kind of limiting, I guess, is that you can't leave the steam community market. You know, you can't take your item and bring it, you know, into your own wallet that you could then take to a different um, ecosystem or storefront or whatever. It's all very siloed and, and sort of locked in. Um, so if, if Steam opens those doors, then of course they're going to lose market share and probably revenue. And it, it completely makes sense why they would take a very defensive posture um, in, in regards to NFTs and games. Let's, let's kind of look forward now as we kind of wrap up the podcast. What is in store for Xpopulous? What have you got coming up? And what are the kind of new business models or trends that you think will emerge as Web3 gets increasingly integrated into the gaming industry? So what's up for us is we're going to be releasing a couple of games this year. Um, Lamoverse will come out later this year. Uh, we'll have our trading card game that'll come out later this year and possibly more games. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're in acquisition talks for, for some games that have already released. Uh, and we'll be acquiring those teams and, and those games and assets and make them available as basically as soon as possible. Um, I think in regards to trends, there is so much that is possible with an NFT that I don't think people fully realize. Of course, traditional gamers can't understand why somebody would spend so much money, quote unquote, on a JPEG. Um, but what's really interesting to me is the cross-promotional capability of games that include nfts so for instance i can easily say if you own an axie then you know you get early access to our game that's coming out and we're going to basically detect if you own an axie when you come and and download the game and if you do maybe not only do you get early access uh but we'll give you some bonus items as well and we don't even need axie's permission per se to to do that right because everything's open um those are the sorts of things that are really intriguing to me about NFTs that you can't currently do uh, in the traditional gaming ecosystem. The, the ways that you can sort of tie these different communities together uh, and leverage the assets in different games to bring even more utility into your own game uh, is something that I'm really excited to see. And I think if you're a game developer in the space and you're listening to this, I think the initial thought that you have when you're making a game is how can other people use my NFTs or my in-game items. I think the better question to ask is how can you use other people's, right? Because the more you do to start to bring utility in from, from these other communities, the more likely it is they're going to come check it out and say, oh, I heard this, this game is um, giving me something special for owning this thing from this other community. And if, if they hear that, it becomes this sort of like marketing um, um, thing that you can do. And to me, that's really fascinating. I can't wait to see what other creative things um, groups do around that interoperability component. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm also fascinated by this idea that blockchains also kind of shared databases or shared CRMs, um, which allow you, know, you to kind of grow this kind of shared user base, which does lots of interesting things to moats. You know, you just look at um, OpenSea and and look as an example, um, where they just kind of airdropped a look token 
to OpenSea users based upon their use of OpenSea to try to vampire attack their user base. And so that is going to be, there's both an offensive and defensive component to it. But generally what it means is that we're kind of growing this shared user base together. And I think also composability around games is really interesting, like one asset being able to be used in, a, in another environment. Um, but look, we're, we're kind of coming up on time. Um, it was fascinating hearing your journey. We're super excited about what you're doing at X Populous. Really looking forward to these various drops happening. I believe one's imminent. And uh, as I said at the top end, you know, you guys have been a, a pleasure to work with, genuine people, um, very principled. Um, so it's been a pleasure. And good luck with, uh, with 2022. Jamie, thanks a bunch for having me on the podcast. Uh, and likewise, Outlier Ventures has been fantastic to work with. Appreciate your support. Uh, and thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Tobias. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.